This episode is sponsored by Visual Media. Are you an entrepreneur or a small business looking to take your brand to the next level? Then Visual Media is the service for you. Visual Media is a video production company who specializes in creating high-quality visual content for social media, websites, and online courses. Head over to Visual Media on Instagram and drop Resilience in their DM to get started. That's V-Z-U-A-L-M-E-D-I-A underscore to get started. What's up, everyone? This is Resilience in Action with Aaron Brown, the number one podcast for anyone looking to have a greater human experience. What's going on, everyone? This is Resilience in Action with Aaron Brown, and our special guest today is Reed Maltby. You got it. Nailed it. <laughs> Reed, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Oh, I'm excited to chat with you. And thanks Love for getting the name right. It's it's a weird one. <laughs> it, I was like, oh, I should have asked. I'm going to shoot it and hopefully it lands. Glad it did. <laughs> it did. I've, I've been called Malibu before. That was my favorite. I was announced as when I was younger and swimming, they called my name for an event. They said, read Malibu. And I said, I'll take it. It's It works. <laughs> Malibu is a good last name. I'll take it. Right. <laughs> read, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a coach's coach. Actually, now I'm just a leadership development expert, but uh, I, I started as a coach. I was a soccer coach for over 30 years working with youth athletes. And at one point in time, shifted that to try to scale out and reach more athletes through coaches. So I became a coach's coach working with traveling the globe and working with coaches at all levels of, of the game. And, and I worked with probably about two dozen different sports. So uh, it's sports I never even played. <laughs> so how were you able to coach them in sports that you've never even played? We broke it down into the basic, you know, pedagogical or psychological construct. So a lot of times I'd get in front of a room. I did this a few years back with U.S. Sailing. I stood in front of the room and said, I come from a landlocked state. I've never sailed before. I know nothing about sailing. You will figure out pretty quickly. I'm an absolute idiot when it comes to sailing. <laughs> the constructs and the concepts and ideas that we talk about, the science behind it, it it's, it's transcends the sport. So you'll learn something today, even though you'll think I know nothing. And that was the feedback I got. The very first person said, he's right. He knows nothing about sailing, but I learned something. So it usually just comes down to those basic principles of leadership. And the three areas I focus on are language, leadership, and learning. And those principles cross over no matter the sport. And now I work tip, I will, I'll work with entrepreneurs and high performers in other spaces. And those, those concepts still cross over into those other spaces. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Let's start with, with, with language. Language is big um, in my life. I believe that language is very, very powerful. And I would rather, instead of you just fumbling or trying to find the right words, I'd rather you be very, very mindful in, in, in the verbiage that you use and, and stuff like that. So how do you tie lead, uh, language into your leadership and your coaching framework? From both, especially from the coaching perspective, uh, and even in leadership, when you're teaching skills or when you're trying to educate or create that learning environment, the language we use is really that becomes the stopgap or the the bottleneck. Like there is there is a connection between the brain and the body. So when we're teaching, we're trying to teach into the brain, but then we're trying to translate that into movement patterns or skills or body. And and as and as most people know, skills skill is in the brain. It's it's neuron firing in the brain. Language is that bottleneck. If we're not using the right language, we may think that what we're saying makes sense and is translatable. 
but to the person hearing it, it may not be. And so it doesn't translate out of the brain into physical activity or doesn't translate into that skill. Mm -hmm. And the way in which we teach language wise has an impact the way in which we lead language wise has an, a psychological or emotional impact on the people we lead. So there's always been this misconception, especially in youth sports that we needed to be that Bud Kilmer coach, the one from varsity blues who just yeah. his athletes down and beat up on them and then built them up into these champions. But the problem is the science actually shows that when we demean people, scream at people, exclude people, create those fear responses that we're shutting down the logic part of the brain. So if we're using language that shut, starts to shut down the logic part and activate the amygdala where the fear center is, mm -hmm. then we're, we're creating fight, flight, or, or, or uh, fight, flee, or freeze responses in people. They can't think, they can't learn as well. So we're actually restricting their ability to learn. So language becomes that op that that great opener that allows us to open up the floodgates of learning if we're using language that keeps people in a calm, processing logic space within their head, they'll tend to pick up activities more quickly and learn more quickly. That is a nod to every every coach that I know. There's a way that you you coach your your team to I won't say victory, but there's a way and uh, and uh, the language that you use is very, very, very important. I never knew that, well, it never dawned on me that the screaming and the berating had such a restrictive effect on learning what we needed to learn to execute, you know, on the field, wherever, in the water, wherever you are, you know. That's a, that's a great perspective and, and some valid information that will definitely make coaching a lot easier for, well, maybe, because I think some of that ties into the person that you are. Mm -hmm. you, you touched on another point. Language matters to each person. Mm -hmm. So our language patterns, the words we use, what activates our brain is different based on a person's nurture and nature, based on how they were raised and, and the environment in which they were raised in, and just genetically based on how they process language based on genetics, simple genetics. Like some people are, are geared and are okay with demanding, you know, having that a coach in their face. And I believe it was, um, Oh, I, I, I think it was, I'm trying to remember who it was. It was one of the, one of the Warriors players uh, said that they like when Steve Kerr gets in their face, Kevin Durant said he likes when Steve Kerr gets in his face because that's what he needs in the heat of the moment. So there are those people that are geared. So yeah, you do need to tailor your language to each person and their situations. You look at the military armed forces, they do, they put them in situations where they have to instinctually, they have to function still at, at an instinctual level because life is on the line. And so they do need to teach them under those high pressure screaming situations. There are situations where that occurs, but in general with youth athletes, and we've seen it with professional teams like the New Zealand All Blacks, they realized when they backed off of the, the berating, demeaning, screaming and went to asking more questions, still peppering them hard in these very intense situations, but they changed the language. It wasn't screaming at them. It was it was asking it to them to continue to process with their brain. And like you said, again, each of those all blacks, they'll respond. The players on that team will respond differently to how the language is used with them. So it, it is a very personal thing. Yeah, absolutely. Language is, is one of the, one of the keys to unlocking so much potential, you know, uh, with who, whoever you're talking to and also with yourself.
you know, that, that self-talk we're so good at sometimes being really, really hard. We, I, I believe that we are our biggest critics. Um, so when you can find a way to use that language in a, in a good way, in a positive way that, that also is realistic, you know, I, I will never tell someone to, you know, sugarcoat it just to make you feel better. You know, if you really, really did horrible or that was just a horrible decision, it takes some honesty to say that, you know, it takes some honesty. So that language ties into really showing up for ourselves and being honest as well. How do you think honesty? Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. So how do I think honesty? How do you think honesty plays in uh, language when it comes to coaching? It is, it's, it's, again, it's one of the, the primary it's one of our primary directives. I'm trying to think of the best way to put it as a coach, because without that honesty, we don't build that trust. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have trust between our athletes, we don't have that respect. We are not going to see the growth as great in them. They need to trust us and know that we have their best interests in heart and know that what we're doing is for the best of them. And then they're willing to fully engage in, and fully learn. And that comes from that honesty. And the problem is a lot of times when when you talk to people and you say, this is, you know, we're going to be more kind and gentle, or we're going to, we're going to deliver in a different way rather than be demeaning or berating. A lot of people will say, well, then how are they ever going to learn? We can't give them feedback. We're too soft. We just let them get away with everything. And we never give them, oh, Johnny, you're such a great, you know, no, yeah. that's not. Honesty is where we're allowed then, like you said, to be more critical with people. Honesty, once they know that we're there for the best of them, we've created that and they know we're going to be honest and we've created that trust, then we can give them feedback that they need to hear. But the key is, is we've built that relationship so that they now have that growth mindset where they're looking for feedback, where the athletes desire to get better, where they know that you will be able to provide that guidance. And they need to be these independent problem solvers. The other thing about educating somebody with the correct language is you're creating the independent problem solver. So they're trying to solve problems on their own. They're not looking to you for the answers. If you're demeaning and berating and yelling and giving answers all the time, then every time they do something wrong, they're going to look to you to see what to do next. Mm. They're going to look to you for the answer. But if you're in an environment where you've allowed them to keep that logic process brain in place and you're asking of them to solve problems, what do you see? How would you solve it? What does it look like? What would that look like if you did it that way? Why? Those questions are keeping them in that growth mindset, that problem solver perspective. So now when I give feedback, they're actually looking to me and saying, Hey, what did you think of that performance coach? Give me some feedback. I need something. I need to learn to grow. Now you can be honest. And it's not, we're not doing a sandwich. I'm not saying, oh, you did this well, but you did this poorly and you did this well. I'm just saying, this is what I saw. Do you want my guidance? Okay, so I saw this. What do you think would happen in this situation? And now again, I'm asking them, oh, I should do this. And would that work? I, you know, And so you're working through it with them. And sometimes, yeah, it's just straight up. Yeah, that wasn't a great performance. That's okay. Let's shake it off. Let's get on to the next one. What can we do differently to fix the next performance? Yeah, love it. Love it. So your language, you also said leadership? Yes. Let's talk about leadership. <laughs> what does... <clears throat> well, we know how leadership plays in coaching, right? How important, let me backtrack. Let me ask you, Reed, what do you think are the top qualities, leadership qualities that a good coach must have? Empathy mm. right, is, is number one. You have to know what your players are going through. Yeah. how they're feeling in that moment because we're an adult 
I'm 49 years old. If I'm working with 16 year olds, they're experiencing a completely different world. They're 16. So they're, they're in a different world and they're 16 in a world that I didn't live in. So they're mm-hmm. experiencing things differently. So I have to understand that about them. I have, I have to have that empathy, uh, courage, courage to allow them to grow into a leadership role. A lot of times leaders think that it's about them being controlling and staying in charge. But great leadership is creating future leaders. Great leadership is teaching people how to lead themselves. And that takes courage. It takes that courage to understand that I'm going to have to pass along this, this skill set to them that allows them to almost exist without my presence. And that's scary. Uh, and another one would be uh, understanding, again, a, a grasp of communication patterns. Mm-hmm leader needs to be a great communicator. They need to understand how to package language in a certain way, how to say things in correct context and how to, uh, as, as my son would always put it, things in his perspective. That's not how I learned dad. He once said that to me because I said, Oh, it's easy. Here's how you do it. This is how I learned. And he said, yeah, but that's not how I learned dad. And so it's being able to see that, understand that and teaching that perspective. Uh, I, I believe it also requires to be a very good, I'll use the term observer, not just the listener, but an observer. Great leaders are constantly drawing information from those around them, the environment and the people they lead. They're listening to them one, but they're watching. Sometimes people won't tell you, you know, they'd say, Oh, you have to be a great listener. True. I want to listen to the people I lead, but sometimes they're not going to tell me, especially with young athletes, or especially with people much younger than me. I'm going to have to watch them and infer from things I'm seeing body language, facial expressions, behavior patterns, activities, what's going on with them. And I've got to try to use that then to uh, unpack how I can help lead them better. If somebody's having a bad day, I need to catch on to that pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So I write that ship emotionally for them. And then there's an emotional intelligence that great leaders have. It's this self-awareness of your own feelings, of your own behaviors and how they impact the people around you. It's a self-awareness of the situation and the feelings and behaviors of the people, of the people around you and how that's impacting you. And so there's a high level of emotional intelligence in great leaders. And the final one is a, a, a we, you mentality. So in other words, everything is about we, it's not about me. Even though I might be the leader, I need to make sure that it's about the team. It's about the group. It's about the people I'm with. It's about those around me that I'm leading. And then there has to be a you mentality. When they do something wrong, I've got to be willing to say it was us, not them. You messed up. No, no. I may have messed up in not preparing them well enough. So I need to be able to shoulder some of the blame alongside the the team I'm leading. And then when they do something great, get out of the way. It's got to be a you. You did this. You had this accomplishment, not me especially when you're in a position where you are a very established, credible expert and you're leading other people who would be considered novices. There's no need for you to step in and say, I did this. I created this. I won this game two to one. Did you? Because you were on the sideline. They won the game two to one. You prepared them to win the game, but let them have their moment and give it a you situation. So it's that we, you mentality. I love that. Hey, hey, hey. Did you know I wrote a book? It's called The Value Method. Five Steps to Unlocking Your Greatest Potential. And in it, I share just that. Five wildly easy, actionable steps that will set you up to have a greater human experience daily. I've included interactive worksheets and small assignments at the end of each chapter. You're literally creating a living blueprint of your best life. Be sure to check out the show notes for the link to purchase your copy and a copy for a friend. 
I say that all the time. That's one of one of my top leadership skill sets that I think every leader, regardless, if you call yourself a leader, that's something that you have to have. Knowing that when when there's a mess up, it's a it's a we. But when when somebody has a win or when a team has a win, it's a them. They they did this, you did this, you take the credit. This is a you you thing, because I'm a leader for a reason. You're a leader for a reason. And it's to coach and develop, you know, your team to be able, like you said, to exist and thrive without you. And I think that sometimes just, I, I guess, as we're human beings, right? We love to, to take the credit. We love that. Yeah. We, <laughs> we, we, we coach them, we train them. And yeah, I did that. Sometimes we just need to take that step back and, and let them enjoy the win. And some, I guess it's, it's really hard for some people to do. And I'm not saying that makes you not a leader because you, you can still be a leader. I just don't think that makes you a good leader. Yeah. Limited, right? There's limitations. Mm -hmm. So I, I would agree with you. It, 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 there's a limitation put on you as a leader when you can't get past that, that we, them mentality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huge limitations there. You <laughs> name, nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you name some key skill sets and some really, really powerful things that really make, can make you a standout leader. Um, now, out of all of these skills that you highlighted, is there anyone that tops them all? Hmm. Wow. And, and there's so many more I think we could talk about. Sure. Not those are the only ones, but I, I would, the emotional intelligence really mm. is one, just because I think that the empathy comes out of emotional intelligence. Yeah. That, that understanding the weak, I think a lot, I, I think a lot of those are derived out of even the com communication patterns. If I've got the high emotional intelligence, then it's much easier for me to figure out what my communication patterns are, what my context is, how, what words I need to be using in certain situations with certain people. And so I, I, that may be the, the, the bigger one, the, the most important one to have. If you can start with emotional intelligence, we can develop the other pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. I love that. That actually makes so much sense. Very, very important. Emotional intelligence is important just for life. Yes. Um, and there's a, an emotional fitness piece too. That's been a phrase that's come up a lot. I've got a, a good friend who uses that term all the time. It's, it's, it's not just intelligence, it, it's fitness, right? It's, it's, we're, we're all on an emotional roller coaster. So if I'm emotionally fit, then I learn to manage my emotions, which helps me manage other, help, help other people manage their own. And so, yeah, there's a little bit of a fitness piece in there too. Yeah. I like that. That's new. I've never heard that, but emotional fitness, it makes so much sense. It's, it's a muscle. It, it's a muscle. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <And it. laughs> muscles have to be worked out, you know, for them to, to be beneficial. So yeah, emotional fitness. I like that. Language is a big thing, like I said, and that may make things, make it click to someone else, you know? We're, I'm trying to collect story systems and strategies to make living life easier 
for other people, whoever decides to listen to this. Um, and that little piece of information may, someone may have been struggling with that emotional intelligence, they're just not getting it. But emotional fitness, they're like, hmm, there it is. I love yeah. it. Thank you. Thank you for that. That oh, final, <laughs> that final L, what was that final L? Language, leadership, learning, learning. Let's go there. What, obviously, we know why learning is important. How does that translate to what you do? So it was easier to explain it in youth sports because it was it was a learning environment. So mm -hmm. that's what you're there for is to teach and, and educate, not just in the game, but in other areas. Yeah. Learning is is a lifetime skill. It's not about going to class, but it's it's about being able to acquire new skills, being able to adapt to your environment, being able to assess situations and then make decisions based on those situations that you know actually would produce positive results. Yeah. And any any industry, any situation you're in, there are learning opportunities. You're working with the sales teams. There's opportunities to learn how to sell better, better to learn how to communicate more effectively, to learn even just the behavioral patterns of the customers to whom you're selling and understanding how they're functioning within that selling environment. So as a leader, if you understand the basic principles of human learning and you understand the basic principles of how to create these environments where people can learn more effectively, it just makes you a better leader and it makes them better teammates or employees or whatever, the, you know, whatever environment you're in, it makes it a better relationship. And so that's where learning matters most is even, even as simple as a new hire in an organization, if you are creating the right environment where they can learn quickly, they will adapt to the organizational culture. They will adapt to the organizational principles and policies and procedures much more quickly. And they will also adapt to the workflow that is happening within that organization. So they become quickly a member of the team. If you don't set up those learning environments, that's when you have those situations where six months down the line, you're still struggling with an employee to actually fit in or, or work well within a team setting is because that learning environment wasn't in place properly. Mm. How do you help? Now you say you're a coach's coach, right? So you help develop coaches. How do you teach new coaches or let's say novice coaches they don't have to be brand new but they have some experience maybe not like coaching nba or anything like that but they've coached a few little leagues or something like that how do you best help them with their learning with their learning uh mm -hmm. so I, I, I get geeky and then I get a little bit freewheeling. So the geeky. <laughs> I love it. Okay. I will work on things like the zone of proximal development. Like where, where is that zone where you know that you're being pushed outside of your comfort zone to learn more effectively, but you're not so frustrated that you're going to quit because you burned out mm. or that you're, you're not so bored with the material, with what you're trying to learn that you just, it doesn't do anything for you. So you got to get them in that zone where it's like, I'm being pushed a little bit. I'm not comfortable, but I'm not so uncomfortable. I want to quit. And then we're going to learn within that zone, peer assisted learning. So we'll focus on peer assisted learning. So working with other coaches or working with other athletes 
pairing them up. So if there's a coach that I know has a particular skill and a novice coach says, Hey, I've really been trying to learn better about game day operations or how I manage my bench much better. I'll pair them with a coach who's very good at that. And so that we can get that peer, peer assisted learning. Uh, I'll also ask them to teach me. Sometimes the best way to learn is to teach it yourself. You, my uncle gave me a, a, when I graduated from my second master's was in early childhood education. When I graduated from it, he gave me a, a vase that he had made or a, a jar that he had made that said to, to teach, to, to teach once is to learn twice. Mm. And so I'll get them into situations where they're teaching and break it down in the basic principles. Like here's the best way that the brain learns here, are the best environments that the brain learns. Let's toss out some of the myths that are out there. Like, you know, um, uh, learning styles. It's not learning styles. It's just contextual teaching. I'll talk to them about teaching in context. So if it's in a sports situation, we can't teach in a vacuum. If you're teaching a particular skill, it's got to be practiced as if it were being played in the game. Cause if you teach it in a va vacuum, it won't translate as quickly state dependent learning type mentality. So we'll get into the very geeky science and then to flip it is again, you have to have an extremely effective environment. So we'll go to the other two pieces, leadership and language. And we'll talk about those things like Look them in the eyes, get down to eye level, change your voice tone when you're teaching. You know, if I'm teaching to a group of kids and I'm yelling, I'm just yelling. But if I lower my voice, they lean in because they want to hear. Because if I've got a group of kids and I'm close to them and I start talking much softer, they're going to lean in because they want to hear what coach has to say. Those are the moments where I can really teach. Uh, don't put, don't have your back to the sun or to a group of people playing behind you. Because if you're sitting there talking to a group of athletes and there's a group of people playing behind you or a playground behind you, I guarantee you, they're not watching you. They're watching the kids go down the slide. So <laughs> things like if there's a sun, then they're squinting the whole time because they can't see you. So I, I'll give them those hints and tips and tricks to set the perfect environment. And then, and like I said, layered in with some of the science behind it, because from my perspective, if it's explained to me why people do the things they do or how they do the things they do, then I'm better at understanding it when I'm on my own. And it's the same thing. I don't want just to give the coaches the answers. I want them to understand and develop their own answers for situations. So teaching the science to them gets them to understand this is how children learn best, or this is how people learn best. This makes so much more sense so that when they're on their own, they can problem solve that and say, why aren't my kids listening to me? Oh, I see. Cause I'm standing 30 yards away screaming. It's just white noise to them. You know, it's just like turning on the machine at night to go to bed. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I got to get them close. <laughs> yeah. And so um, that they don't, you know, so they can actually understand what I'm trying to say. Love that. I love that. And I love the way that you are able to, you do the sign, you have the science behind it. Right. And I am big on when you understand why, uh, me too. When, you, when I understand why something works the way it works or why we do things a specific way, it makes it easier for me to adapt and implement it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. So, so what is the Spartan mindset? I see that behind you. Let's, let's go there. What is that? So it is a book I wrote about mastering the language of excellence. And uh, so people have been asking me lately to define it. And the thing about the Spartan mindset is it's really, there's no, it's not about defining it. It's about living it. It's about understanding mm -hmm. it. It has to do with resilience and adaptability and innovation and um, uh, confidence and courage. And so a lot of times what I talk about is like, you know, the concept of resilience is it's not just, sometimes you have to embrace the suck. Sometimes things are just tough yeah. and you have to learn to go through those things and you'll be better for it. There's other times where that is not worth being in that because 
uncomfortableness is not going to lead to success. So in that situation, you're going to have to innovate a new way around it. I've got to solve this problem, avoid this particular obstacle and find a different way. And there's other times where it's like, I can't avoid the obstacle, but I don't want to suffer through it. I need to adapt and figure out a way to overcome it from an adaptation perspective. I can't go through it. I'll go over it, that type of thing. And so the Spartan mindset really it comes down to unlocking language in a way that allows us to perform at peak within these high stress, high pressure, high performance situations and trimming out the language that actually inhibits or um, uh, prohibits our ability to perform well. So perilous words, words that actually shut down brain processes. The reason it's called the Spartan Mindset is because I found two amazing stories that bookended the, the entire book. And they gave me an opening story and a closing story. And I thought, this is perfect. So we went with Spartan Mindset, but it's really not about being Spartan in the sense of the Spartans themselves. It's about having this indomitable spirit, this compete at all times mentality, this enjoying the journey as we go, embracing the suck, learning to adapt and, and innovate, and using language in such a more powerful way that it creates just a very... Um, almost imperceptible connection between the brain and body. In other words, there's not a disconnect. It's completely meshed. The brain and body are working side by side. So the software and the hardware are both running at full speed. Wow. What encouraged that book? <laughs> I had been doing a lot of workshops from like 2015, 2016. I'd been doing these workshops called Warriors Not Winners, which was the idea that we had been creating this winter mentality in our youth and people were getting very upset. It's the American idol syndrome where the kids like, but mom always said I was a great singer. And Simon Cowell's like, but you're not. And they have a meltdown on national TV. And you're like, why would that happen? Because we didn't, like you said, we didn't have honest feedback. We didn't give, we did, it was all about winning or the, che the cheating mentalities of, you know, having 15 year olds throw in 12 year old baseball games so we can win the little league world series type mentality. And so it became a win at all costs mentality. And we saw it springing up in our society pretty heavily in, you know, 20, 2012, 13, 14, 15 range. I wanted to shift that. We wanted to shift that over to, instead of thinking about winning, think about competing at at all times, because if you're competing, if you're creating a competitor mentality, we show up and we compete our very best every day. And sometimes we win and sometimes we don't, but we don't let the winning poison how we approach the process and the competition itself. And so it focused on five uh, psychological constructs. I've now got about 12 of them that are involved, wow. but motivation, intrinsic versus extrinsic, locus of control, the things I can control versus the things I can't, competitive mindset, growth mindset, pieces of the puzzle. And so what I did is I started juxtaposing winners do this and warriors do this. So winners think about finishing and getting it done. Warriors think about getting it right. You know, winners winners say it's all about me. I won this. I Look, I, I moved to this new city and I won a national championship for my, or I won a league title for my team. It's all about me, me, me. And warriors are saying, no, it's about us. It's about the team. I'm willing to sacrifice at some point for the greater good. Hey, hey, hey. If you're enjoying this content, do not forget to rate and review. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, be sure to rate and review. It helps us reach more people in more ways. Now, let's get back to some resilience. Wonderful, wonderful. So how long did it take you to write your book? Uh, 30 years, one month, five years. <laughs> <And I say laughs> that because The book was 
it's it's was 30 some years worth of mentorship, uh, learning from others, watching others, studying in, in the classrooms, my own practice. Uh, it, it, everything went into the book that I'd been doing over my career that I wanted to share. Uh, I had a challenge from my son to write the book in a month. He he, I was working on a PowerPoint having or a presentation having to do with uh, the brain and and how words impact the brain. And and he said, oh, "Man, it'd be really cool if you wrote a book." I'm, I'm a word nerd, so he said, yeah, "It'd be really cool if you put all your favorite words in a book. Those words that you think have that kind of impact." And so we mapped it out. It was it, it was even though I say it was written in a month, it wasn't a whimsical thing. I I painstakingly mapped out each chapter. I knew what I wanted to talk about. I knew what my bullet points were. So I had framework in place for everything. I went out and found all the stories I wanted or, you know, thought about my own personal stories that I wanted to put in there. And then every day, the challenge was to write a thousand words a day to exercise that muscle. I'd been reading and the Mott's bird by bird and Tim Ferriss talked about it and Ryan holiday and others always talk James clear. They always, always talked about, right. Exercise that muscle. So my, my goal was to write a thousand words a day. And that was the challenge from my family, from him and that's my family. So at the end of every day, I would sit down and go into writing mode and I would turn on my writing software and focus and do nothing else, put headphones in and then look at my bullets, knew where I wanted to go with it, knew, you know, had the major research points or anything that mattered there. And then I expound, just let the, let my brain flow through my fingers. Well, you can't, you, you, you can't stop at a thousand words. If you're in flow and you're writing a chapter, even if it's 1500 or 6,000 words, I had to finish each chapter. So I ended up writing the book in 30 days, roughly. And so I, it sat, I, imposter syndrome, other things happened, life took over. I just wasn't, I didn't think I was ready to publish it. All those other things happened. And I had all these blocks that we all have, these 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 stories we tell ourselves, oh, the book would never get published. Nobody would ever read it. It's not worth putting out there. And so I let those happen for about five years. And then finally, my mentor was like, it's now or never, buddy. Like, step out of the shadows, quit hiding and share with the world your book. So find, uh, reach out to an agent, find a publisher. And we, we go through the whole like four or five months of editing and all that stuff. And I'm telling you all that because it took five years to the day that the book was completed in a written format to then have the go to print email sent to the publisher. The day I sent the email saying, let's go to print because we'd done all the editing we could and the manuscript was ready was the, on my timeline on Facebook, it showed me a memory. It was a, to the day, exactly five years prior I had posted. I just finished writing 30 some 40 some thousand words. I'm going to take a break now. So <laughs> three years compiled into a month and then it took five years to go to print. That's crazy. But but the reward from it is, can you speak on that? What does that feel like? It being done, it's in pre-sale, pre-order now. Uh, how do you feel about that accomplishment? Uh, it profound sense of accomplishment and just a, a, a big weight taken off my shoulders. Now there's the other weight of the anxiety of, oh gosh, will people like it? Will I get negative reviews? Will it just you know, gather dust. The average author only sells 250 books. So mm -hmm. my goals, if I sell 251 books, I go, all right. I, <laughs> the average. Not so average, right? <laughs> Isn't that, it feels good to put your voice out into the world and know that 50, 60, 70 years from now, I may be gone, but there's something that I created that is sitting on a shelf somewhere and may potentially have some kind of echoing impact in the future. Profound sense of grateful gratitude and and accomplishment yeah 
I bet. Well, congratulations. Writing a book is not easy. And then editing and then getting it published and what route you take. And, and none of it is easy. I think the, the easiest part is coming up with the concept like, okay, hey, I want to write a book. Then the hard work comes into play when actually, you know, doing it. So congratulations on writing your book and it's um, in pre-sale now. So that's super exciting. I'll make sure I'll put that link in the, in the show notes. But yes, I want to say congratulations. You definitely earn your spot on the author list. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. of course, of course. <laughs> Reed, how can we find you on social media and how can we support you on what you're doing? Oh, I'd, I'd love to actually support anybody that's on their journey. So you can find me at Coach Reed. Uh, most of my social media accounts are Coach underscore Reed. But if you do a search for Coach Reed, I, I typically pop up and and uh, I'm hard to miss <laughs> on there. Um, you know, there's, there's a few other coach reads out there, uh, but, uh, you know, all of us sort of like, you'll, you'll see all of our videos and stuff together. And then coachread.com is my, my website. And if you go there, I've, I've got all my social media links on there, as well as a link to go to my book site, which just basically I, I set up as a, a, a site just so that I could tell people about the book. Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, read, I want to thank you for spending some time with us today and really, you know, sharing your story, sharing your journey and your knowledge and just the, your expertise, you've really shown up as a coach's coach. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's, it was seeing how my coaches mentored me. It, it feels like I'm passing along the torch and it's, so it's a really good feeling to, to know that, that something that they did for me, I can, I can continue for the next generation. That's absolutely fantastic. Before I let you go, I have one more question for you. Wonderful. Reed, Coach Reed, what does resilience mean to you? <laughs> you know, I've been thinking about this a lot because of the book, obviously. It, it really is it really is focused around resilience. So I, I had a discussion with a buddy the other day. We were talking about this. Resilience to me is it's not just that bouncing back, which is the typical definition, but if you go into like psychological definitions, things like that, like the APA, it's also this for me, it's always been, it's not just bouncing back, but sometimes an obstacle, you can't bounce back from it. You have to go through it. Like you actually have to endure it. And so it's the whole David Goggins, Jocko Willing, you know, concept of embrace the suck. Like I've got to, I just have to endure this to get to the other side and I'm going to be stronger because of it. So resilience is getting stronger through adversity. It's bouncing back from adversity. Sometimes it's innovating and realizing that this adversity isn't going anywhere and I can't get through it. So I'm going to have to figure out another way around it. So it's, it's being a little bit innovative. And then, like I said, that adaptive piece of knowing that, you know, that there's this story of like water will change a potato and egg and coffee uh, or a potato and egg. So an egg hardens in the water, uh, potato softens in the water, but coffee beans don't change. They change the water. And that's resilience to us. It's like life is going to come at us. And our goal to be resilient is to make sure that we change the world around us, not let the world change us, not let alter who we are. I love that. It's literally resilience in action, right? It's the doing. It's a fantastic. Um, Reed, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Oh, I loved it. Fantastic conversation. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk with you. Of course. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, be sure to rate and review. And remember, resilience in action will always lead to a greater human experience.